Amen. Good morning, Grace Hill. How is everyone? Good. It's good to see everyone. Excited for this first Sunday of uh, Advent uh, to be with you. My name is Alan, one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. So if this is your first time here or you're new here, I uh, would love to be able to uh, meet you after the service in the lobby. So looking forward to do that. But what we're going to do right now is jump into God's word together. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke. It's the third um, book in your New Testament, and you can go to chapter one. We're going to read from chapter one. We'll be reading the same text uh, that Monty and Lori read for us uh, just a few minutes ago. If, and again, if you need to use your Bible app on your phone, that's fine. Verses will be on the screen behind me. Uh, as well. You know, uh, this morning I got up early because we needed to do uh, a few last minute things to prepare for this morning and uh, went by the Starbucks on Eldon Street um, to get a cup of coffee through the drive through. And uh, this is a normal routine for me, so it usually just takes a minute, 30 seconds to a minute, to get my coffee in that drive through. And I pulled in. This morning, and there was a car ahead of me um, at the window, and that car sat there for like four minutes. And I'm sitting there getting agitated because I'm ready for my coffee, um, although it was going to be my second cup of the morning. And uh, I, what's running through my head is, there is, this is this is being caused by one of two scenarios. Uh, scenario number one is the person in the car ahead of me ordered the most ridiculous drink that the baristas have no idea how to even make it, and they probably sent it back three times because they didn't make it perfect, and that's the reason for my delay. Or the barista behind the counter, as someone who worked at Starbucks through college, uh, is obviously incompetent, and they don't know how to get a line going. I was getting frustrated because... It took me four minutes to get my coffee this morning instead of 30 seconds. And that is just preposterous that someone would do that. And I think this is a parable for our culture. We hate to wait. We do not like getting delayed. We don't have patience to endure any time of waiting anymore. It's because I think our our culture has brainwashed us into believing that any wait time is actually a waste of time. Uh, if you think about it, uh, how much of our economy today is built upon developing technology and systems to reduce your wait time? Uh, think about the infrastructure that Amazon has had to put into place to get any product in the world to your doorstep in 24 hours. I mean, it, it's amazing. And now they want to use drones to get it there within an hour because 24 hours is too long to wait. Or I remember, my wife will laugh at this, uh, last June, uh, we celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and so we went out to California to celebrate. My wife hadn't been to California, so we rented a car. We're going to drive around. And I normally rent from National, but this time I rented from Hertz. And so we're at LAX. We get to the rental car spot, and I go to the rental car uh, counter, and I immediately just get frustrated because there's a long line to get to the counter. 
And so we wait in this long line. Eventually we get to the counter and I'm talking to this agent about insurance options and contracts and she's going through all the language with me and I have to sign stuff and pay for it. Then they walk us to the car and they show us the car. And, and it, it, from landing at LAX to getting into my rental car was like an hour. Now, this frustrated me, and my wife was, she knew that I was frustrated, uh, because I normally rent from National. And National, you don't have to talk to anybody to get into your rental car. You just go in your app, you reserve all the insurance, all the contract stuff's done on your app. They got your credit card on file. You just go straight to the lot. You pick your own car, get in, and drive away. It takes less than five minutes to rent a car from National. And I promise I don't get a commission from National but they are better. <laughs> but this is my normal rental car experience. So this is my expectation. And so when I get delayed, when I have to wait, I get frustrated. And in that one incident, it all got redeemed because my wife sweet talked the lady at the counter and got us an upgrade. But, uh, but what is it about waiting that frustrates us so much? Waiting at stoplights waiting in traffic, waiting at the doctor's office, waiting in line. And I'm not just talking about waiting as an inconvenience. What about when we're waiting for something much deeper than that? Like waiting to meet somebody and get married one day. Or waiting for someone to apologize. Or waiting for the depression to lift and go away. Or waiting for the job offer to come. Or the promotion or raise to come. Or for the business to start taking off. Waiting for the month where finally you're pregnant. See, waiting as an inconvenience is one thing. But I remember when my wife and I tried to get pregnant for two years with no success. Wondering based off of some health challenges she had in the past, if we would ever be able to get pregnant, and kind of feeling this skeptical hope every month that maybe this would be the month, only to be disappointed. That kind of waiting, when you want something so deeply, can be demoralizing, it can be depressing, especially, listen to this, if you believe God is sovereign, meaning he's in control of everything, and that he's all-powerful, meaning that he can do whatever he wants, because if you believe that about God, then it, it kind of seems like your waiting is intentional by God. Well, this morning, I'm, I'm excited because we're gonna, we're gonna jump into the gospel of Luke together. And as we study the opening passage of the Gospel of Luke, which was read for us earlier, we are going to read about a people who have been waiting on God for a long time. And as we read their story, I believe that we will learn why we hate to wait so much and also how to wait with joy. Whether we're talking about being inconvenienced at a stoplight or we're waiting on God for something much deeper. So go ahead, let's, let's get into our Bibles. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, we're gonna turn there. Now you heard me right, we're gonna start the Gospel of, of Luke this morning, meaning we're, we're starting a sermon series that's gonna last 
a long time. Luke is about 24 chapters, and we're going to work through this thing verse by verse. I'm sure we'll take a few breaks here and there, but we're starting the Gospel of Luke this morning. So just get used to coming to church and turning to the Gospel of Luke uh, in your Bible. But I'm excited for us to dive into one of these Gospels, studying the life in the ministry of Jesus. And as has been said, this Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. Traditionally, the church takes the four Sundays before Christmas to think about the first Advent, the first coming, that's what Advent means, of Jesus that we obviously celebrate on Christmas Day. So over the Sundays of Advent and on Christmas Eve, uh, we're going to be in Luke 1 and 2, studying the birth of Jesus uh, together. But before we jump into our text this morning, let me just give us a few introductory remarks about the Gospel of Luke, since we are starting uh, this very long Gospel. In our Bibles, we have four Gospels, all right? These are four separate accounts by four different authors about the life and the ministry of Jesus, and one of those is Luke. And Luke tells us in the first four verses here why he wrote this. And so let's, let's read that together, just Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. This is what Luke says. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke was not an eyewitness to the life and the ministry of Jesus. He's going on secondhand information. What we know about Luke, he was a physician and he was a companion of the apostle Paul. He spent time doing ministry with the Apostle Paul. And this man named Theophilus commissions Luke, hires Luke to gather information and evidence and record an orderly account about the life of Jesus, which is the gospel of Luke, and then the, the, the early church, the growth of the early church, which is the book of Acts. So if you didn't know that, Luke and Acts are two volumes of the same work. Luke writes both of them. But Luke's desire when it comes to his writing is to give us an account of Jesus so that we may have certainty about him and the things that have been taught. And so that's my prayer for us as we study this gospel together is that as we study this, we would have certainty about not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus has done for us and what it means to follow him. Now, Luke's gospel opens up Starting in verse 5, right after these introductory little paragraph there, it opens up about 15 months before Jesus is born. So according to verse 5, it says the story picks up during the days of Herod, king of Judea. All right, so this means that right now we're about 4 BC, okay, that's uh, that's where we're at when it comes to the date. And this is a really significant historical fact because that means the time between the end of the Old Testament 
and the beginning of the New Testament, all right, this blank page here in your Bible is about 400 years. 400 years goes by between our two Testaments, which is a really big deal. All right, so here's what I need to do. I need to get us all historically oriented here when it comes to this time between the two Testaments so that we can understand why it's really significant that 400 years went between our two Testaments. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. Just hang with me. I'm going to give you an Old Testament history lesson in about 60 seconds, okay? Which means it's going to be wholly inadequate, but hopefully it will at least give us the context of where Luke is writing and what he wants us to understand in the beginning of his gospel. All right, 60 seconds, or probably a little bit longer than that, but we'll see. All right, so book of Genesis opens, and it tells us about the rise of the nation of Israel, God's people. Okay, in Exodus, those people are in slavery to Egypt. God rescues them and begins their journey to the promised land. Got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is their journey in the desert. And God is giving them the law. This is how you are to live as my people. All right, then you got the book of Joshua. It records them entering into the promised land. That's modern day Israel. They're going in to live there. And so then you have the history books, which gives us a depiction of life with Israel in the promised land. And they have all kinds of judges and they have all kinds of kings. And for the most part, they fail miserably at following God's law. And so God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to go in there to warn them, hey, you need to repent and follow God's law. If you don't, God's going to punish you. They don't heed the warnings of the prophets. And so God sends a nation, uh, the Babylonians, to go in, destroy Jerusalem, and carry off most of the people of Israel into exile. So they're now banished from the promised land again. They spend some time in exile, and then God eventually lets them come back to return from the exile back to the promised land. So this is about 400, 500 BC, and God lets them begin to rebuild the temple, and God sends them more prophets to warn them, hey, be sure this time that you follow God's law, that you're faithful to worship God in the way that he's told you to. And oh, by the way, the prophet said, one day... God is going to send a Messiah. He's going to send a true king of Israel who'll sit on the throne of David and his kingdom will last forever and he will establish the kingdom of God. He will rescue Israel and God's people from all of their enemies. One day, God is going to send that, all right? So the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Malachi is a prophet. The last thing Malachi says in the book, if you go read it, is that one day a prophet is going to come. And this prophet will come in the spirit of Elijah. All right, that's important. Hold on to that. And what that prophet is going to do is he's going to announce the coming of that Messiah. So look for that prophet to come. So you could imagine the people of Israel were very anxious for God to send them this Messiah who would establish God's kingdom, save Israel from all of their enemies. But then God goes silent. 
for 400 years. That page between your two testaments in your Bible, 400 years, no prophets, no word from God, no appearances of God or that we know of, nothing from God for centuries. And this was disheartening to God's people because a lot happened in those 400 years. A lot of nations came and went invading Israel during that time. I mean, think about our own country's history. 400 years is a long time. 400 years ago, the first ships were hit in Jamestown. A lot happens in 400 years. So I don't have time to go over all of that history of what happened in the world during those 400 years. But by the time the Gospel of Luke opens up, the Roman Empire had taken control of the area. King Herod was named a vassal king to rule over the area on behalf of Rome. In other words, God's people were invaded and conquered again. What about the promised Messiah? What about the guy that you were gonna send and he was gonna be the true king and save us from our enemies, establish the kingdom of God forever? Like, did God forget his promise? Did we do something that made God decide, I'm not gonna do that for you anymore? Why did God's people need to wait so long? Several lifetimes for God to act. See, the gospel of Luke opens in a context where God's people are losing steam. Man, they've probably actually lost all their steam. They're wondering if they've been abandoned. They're tired. Their faith is struggling. Their faith has actually just pretty much turned into rote religious rituals. They're wondering if it's worth it to still follow this God who doesn't answer prayer. I mean, the last people, just think about this, the last people in Israel to hear from God was their great, 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 great grandparents. 12 to 14 generations. And that's a long time to wait. And as Luke's gospel opens, we get the story of one of Israel's priests, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah was no special high priest. In Israel, they had a lot of priests in order to service the temple. So verse 5 tells us that Zechariah was part of the division of Abijah, or Abijah, I'm not sure. There are 24 divisions of priests. And each division was divided into orders. All right, each division of priests served at the temple for one week, twice a year. Each order within that division had a daily rotation. So so when the story picks up, Zechariah is in the midst of one of his one-week assignments at the temple. He's one of, of many priests. But the text tells us that he and his wife were righteous people who loved God, but there was something weighing heavy on their hearts. They had no children, and they're now advanced in years beyond childbearing age. They had been praying to God for a long time to have a child, and they waited and waited and waited, and God didn't answer. Nothing. Nothing. 
So Luke opens his gospel with an entire nation of people who are weary from waiting for God to answer them. And also this elderly couple who are disheartened after waiting years for a child to no avail. So just understanding that context, let's, let's go back to our passage, Luke 1. I want to read the, the story again. I'm going to read verses 8 to 25. Then we'll see what we can learn from this. It says, now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, look at this, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Wait, what's that, Malachi? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. I hate to wait. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. All right, so you have to understand. So this angel appears to Zechariah in the temple and all of a sudden, two deep, I mean, deep longings in Zechariah's heart just start to, they just clash together. On one hand, God had sent an angel to deliver a message from God to Zechariah. This had not happened in 400 years. God was still there. He's still our God. He, he hears our prayers, and we are hearing from him. And the message to Zechariah is that that prophet, the one that Malachi said is going to come in the spirit of Elijah to announce the coming of the Messiah, he's coming. It's happening. The Messiah is coming. God is moving. 
And at the same time, this angel tells Zechariah that his wife, Elizabeth, will be the one to conceive and carry this child, this prophet who will be called John the Baptist, the one Malachi said is going to come. So I almost imagine Zechariah in his head, he's, he's stunned and he's ecstatic because finally God's plan of salvation to send the Messiah is happening. And I think all of the implications of that were running through Zechariah's mind and then it dawned on him. Wait, I'm going to be a dad? Elizabeth is going to be a mom? She's, she's going to have a child? It's almost as if all this news was too much for Zechariah to wrap his mind around. He had been waiting for so long for both the Messiah to come and to have a child. It was just all too good to be true. And so here's what I want to do. As we study this interaction between Zechariah and the angel, here's what I think we can get out of it. I want to give you two reasons that we get from the text of why we hate to wait. And then I want to give us two ways in which we can wait with joy, trusting God. And so here's, here's the first reason why we hate to wait. And here it is. If I don't understand what is going on, or if I can't control what is going on, I assume something is going wrong. Okay? If I don't understand what is going on or if I can't control what is going on, I assume something is wrong. Right. So after receiving this good news from the angel, this is what Zechariah says in verse 18. He says, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He's immediately skeptical. And he needs information in order for his mind to make sense of all of it so he can approve of it. See, when we have to wait on anything and we don't understand the reason for the wait, or if we can't do anything to reduce the wait, we get frustrated because our assumption is something has gone wrong or someone has messed up. And so our reflex is to insert ourselves and, and try to gain control of the situation. This is what Zechariah was doing. He had already waited so long. He thought maybe God had forgotten them and didn't hear their prayers. There's going to be a, a little more waiting to come from this point forward. And so he needed assurances this was real. Can he trust God's word? Will God forget again? Why do we get frustrated when we're the only one in an intersection and there's a red light? Like, why do we get frustrated at that? Or why do we get frustrated when the doctor is running behind? Or we get frustrated when the internet is slow or the drive through is taking too long? Because we assume that someone has messed up and it's directly impacting me. Why do we struggle to pray? when we've been waiting to get pregnant, like Zechariah and Elizabeth? Or why do we struggle to pray when we've been waiting to meet someone or waiting for our financial situation to turn around or waiting for someone we love to be healed or to, to come to know Christ? 
because we're told that God is sovereign and yet he doesn't seem interested in doing anything about my situation. So I don't understand what all the waiting is about. Therefore, someone has dropped the ball and if God is sovereign, then he doesn't care. And this instinct that we have This instinct that something is going wrong if I can't wrap my mind around the weight. It's deeply rooted in a belief that all of us have that we all got way back in the garden in Genesis 3. It's the second reason why we hate to wait. It's this. It's this belief that I I, I believe that I know what is best for me right now. If there's anyone who is most equipped to determine what is best for me right now, it is me. It's the lie the serpent fed Eve in the garden. Eve, you know what's best for you. No one else knows that. How could God knows what is best for you? He doesn't know you. You control your own life. You be the king of your own life. Do not allow God or anyone else have that sort of control or influence over you. It's the anthem of our current culture. So this explains the angel's response to Zechariah in verse 19. Look what he says. It says the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Like, like, do you know who you're talking to? I stand in the presence of God. He gives me something to say. I say it to you. You got a problem with what I'm having to say. You got a problem with Almighty God. The angel had to put Zechariah in his place. Because I'm sure that if we could see what was in Zechariah's head at this moment, there are probably two thoughts running through his mind. The first one was maybe something like this. God, where have you been the last 400 years? You said you were going to send a king who was going to save us from our enemies. Oh, by the way, nation after nation has come in and killed people. I thought you were going to come. You're too late. It would have been better if you came earlier. Secondly, maybe something like this. God, Elizabeth and I, we're too old to have a child. Where were you 20 years ago? It would have been better, but you're too late now. God, I know what's best for me, and you obviously don't because you're too late. I'm sure every one of us have things in our life we long for, and we just don't quite understand why God isn't doing anything about it. From our commute time to work, to the timing and makeup of our family, to our finances, we believe that we know what is best for us more than God, and that God should listen to us when it comes to our plans for our lives. And the first way that we learn to wait with joy is by admitting to ourselves that we have no clue what is best for us right now and in the future. No clue at all. 
In the Old Testament, we read of a story of a man named Job. If you've read Job before, you know that Job, in the beginning of the story, loses everything that he has, his, his family, his money, his property. And the Bible says that God allowed this to happen, implying that God could have prevented it from happening and chose not to. And this book in the Bible is the story of Job struggling with these circumstances and trying to make sense of it. And Job wrestles with the question in this book, why? God, God why would you allow this to happen? And how could a good God allow this to happen to me? And so Job is asking these questions. And there's this moment at the end of the book between God and Job where God appears to Job to answer his questions. Look at this, Job 38, verses 1 to 3. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, I love this, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? If God says that to you, right? I mean, like, just get on your face. It says, dress for action like a man. I like the King James Version. Gird up your loins. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I'll ask you some questions. You answer. And for four chapters, Job, God questions Job with things like this. Hey, where were you when I laid out the foundations of the world? Can you measure it? Where were you when I put the sun in its place and commanded the morning and the night? Can you do that? Can you command the floodwaters to rise over the entire earth? Where were you when I created the lion and its mane and the locust with its wings and the eagles and its high nests that it builds? Where were you? Did you design that? And what God does is he just unravels his majesty of his creation before Job and humbles Job at how big God is and how small Job is. And then God asks Job of this, uh, Job verse 40, verse one, he says this, shall a fault finder, that would be Job, the fault finder, shall a fault finder contend with the almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. What do you have to say, Job? Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Gird up your loins. I'm not done. And God keeps going for two chapters unraveling his majesty and his glory, his power and his wisdom and his plans and his will and his goodness. And it silences Job, not in shame, but in worship. And just think of what Zechariah's response would have been if God would have given him a glimpse of his plans not only to, to give Zechariah and Elizabeth a child, but the part that this child would play in his grand plan to redeem Israel from the, and the rest of the world. Zechariah, I have, I have heard your prayers. I cherish your prayers. I have not ignored you, but my plans for your life 
are wrapped up in a plan that is so much bigger than you. My plans for your child are wrapped up in my plans for the Messiah. Jesus, the one you've been waiting for. The one who would come and defeat sin and establish the kingdom of God. And if I could unravel that plan for you and show you your part in it, your mind would be blown. If Zechariah could see what God was really up to, he would be silenced in worship. And so the first way that we learn to wait with joy is we must admit that we don't know what's best But God does, from the tiniest detail of waiting at a stoplight to the bigger things in life. And the second way that we learn to wait with joy is we must release control. I love the angel's response to Zechariah in verse 20. It says, behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah, I am not going to allow you to insert yourself into this. You're just going to have to sit back and watch my plan unfold. And trust me. You know, if you're like one of those people, if you go to a restaurant and the host says, hey, it's gonna be 10 minutes to the table. And if you're the kind of guy that waits and when it hits minute 11, you're the guy going to the host saying, hey, how much longer is it going to be? I see all these empty tables. How come we're not sitting there? That couple got to go in before us. How long is it gonna be? Because you assume that something has gone wrong and you, and you hate to wait. If you're that kind of guy, what this angel just did to Zechariah would be like telling you 10 minutes to the table and then we're gonna tie you up into a chair and put duct tape over your mouth and you're just gonna have to wait till it comes and you won't be able to control it. This is what this angel does to him. You should have to watch. And for many of us, when we have to wait on something, we can't help but try and manipulate the situation and control it. Instead of praying to God, trusting him, releasing control, and living faithfully according to his word, we push boundaries to try and rush something in our lives. Maybe our standards for the person we date begins to go down. Or maybe we start entertaining some fertility options that are unethical. Maybe we start conducting ourselves more like the world at the workplace to speed up our success. But the idea of just waiting with no control and just being faithful to God, that just doesn't seem like an option. When Kim and I were struggling ourselves to get pregnant and feeling discouraged that we may never be able to, we decided to start the process of becoming foster care parents for Fairfax County. And while we're in the middle of that process, we got pregnant with my son Leland. Shortly after Leland was born, we decided to go ahead and finish the process of getting certified because we already finished all the training, so we didn't have much more to do to get certified. So after that process was complete, 13 months after my son was born, we got a call from the county. There was a little girl who was born the day before and she needed a home. Her name was Christy. 
They were wondering if we could go pick her up at the hospital in the morning. So that next morning, we, we picked up this little girl, we brought her into our home, and she never left. We fostered her for about two years, and then we were able to adopt her. And the reality is when I saw my wife cry every single month when we failed to get pregnant again and again, I would pray to God angry, convinced that what was best for us was to get pregnant now and that there was no reason to wait. But what God knew that we didn't was that his plan for our lives involved his plan for Christie's. And we needed to wait. And if we hadn't gotten pregnant when we wanted to get pregnant, or if we had gotten pregnant when we wanted to get pregnant, we probably would have waited much longer to even consider becoming foster care parents. Christie wouldn't be with us. So I praise God that he didn't give me the answer that I wanted. And I praise God that he doesn't act according to our own will. And that he doesn't look at our plans and say, let me figure out a way to make your plan a reality. I praise God that he has a much better plan for every one of us. And sometimes he just wants us to sit back like Zechariah and watch it unfold. What does God know about your situation that you don't? What does God know about your future that you don't? And wherever you're waiting right now or you're suffering or you're praying to God about something and you feel like you're getting no answer, what does he have planned that involves so many other people that if you could just gaze at it, it would silence you in worship? How might God's plans for your life be wrapped up in his plans for somebody else's life? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted him to be your savior, to, to forgive you of your sin, and you follow him as your Lord and savior, Romans 8.28 says this. says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's not a promise of no suffering. That's not a promise of no heartache or hardship. That's not a promise of no waiting. But it is a promise that what God is up to in your life if you could see it, it would blow your mind and it would silence you in worship. Let's pray. God, this morning, I know there are many different people in this room who are waiting on all kinds of things. I'm sure there are people here who are waiting on a child like Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
Or there are people who are waiting for sickness to be healed. Or for a wayward child to find their way back home. I don't know what it is, Lord, but God, we can be in these moments where we're so fearful of what's going to happen. We're so anxious. And so God, for those people right now, Lord, I pray that your presence would calm their heart and bring a peace to them that transcends understanding. Trusting you. Trusting that if they could see your plan unraveled before them, your glory and your majesty and how you do work all things for the good, for those who love you, Lord, I, that if they could see that, they would call you good. They would have no other words but to say you are good in everything that you do. And God, sometimes we don't understand that. We just wanna wrap our minds around everything. We wanna be able to control everything. I'm sure that's how Zechariah and Elizabeth felt in the entire nation of Israel as they waited for Christ to come. But God, may we look upon their story in the Gospel of Luke and be encouraged today that when we feel like you don't hear our prayers, no, you do. When we feel like you're silent, it's not because you've left us. But Lord, you do have a plan for us. And it is for our good and it's for your glory, Lord. Help us to trust in that and to release control and to follow you. In Christ's name. Amen.